0: Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about war and political theology, following up on last week with our conversation with Reverend Baroness Maeve Sherlock on faith and politics. And joining me today to discuss this, we have Brandon Hurlbert, who is a PhD candidate in Old Testament at Durham University. How's it going, Brandon?
1: Hey, John. Thanks for having me.
0: And joining us, we have special guest Michael Spaglione, who recently passed his Viva in political theology at Trinity College Bristol through the University of Aberdeen, and is currently a research associate at the Center for the Study of the Bible and Violence in Bristol. How's it going, Michael? Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you. Now, I hope this question doesn't give you PTSD, but would you like (laughs) to tell our listeners a little bit about what your thesis was?
2: Yeah. Oh man. I, I kind of feel like Calvin from Calvin and Hobbs, not John Calvin, the 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 good one. When uh cause there's this uh, comic strip where school finally gets out and it's the first day of summer and he does this like imaginative journey as like spaceman spiff or something, and he just like pulls this lever in his head and dumps out all the stuff he's learned. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel right now. It's like what What I do? <laughs> um, but yeah, I did it on um, political theology of war, specifically looking at the significance of the church and the kingdom of God and how they inform how political theology approaches and understands war. It's kind of got that practical bent because it's working with within the church, but it also is very much a kind of philosophical and a theological and exegetical approach to what we should be doing as Christians when it comes to the topic of war. Mm. So, my actual thesis is that the church is a kingdom, so it's a key article there a kingdom uh, that, annou- that sojourns amongst the nations, counseling them to lay down. The sword, by which I mean the use of deadly force, sounds awesome. Just it is awesome. Was there
1: a fun title with your thesis? Was it something crazy?
2: It, it was. Uh, it was super boring and dry. Um, but I'll tell you it It was called uh, "Church, Kingdom, and Political Theology: colon, A Constructive Hermeneutical Proposal in Dialogue with Oliver O'Donovan and Stanley Harrows." Hopefully, when it goes to be published, it's. it's we're, we're going to find a, a nice, sexy title for it. Like, war, colon, don't do it. I'll, I'll keep working on it. <laughs> keep working on it. Well,
0: I thought you were going with the musical reference there, like, war, what is it good for? Uh, but, <laughs> but, but in our kind of current political climate here in the States, especially in 2020, right, things are quite partisan. And obviously, pacifism has a rich heritage within christianity but in our current situation i think especially talk of pacifism could be perceived as kind of anti-military and particularly you know individuals who are in the military how do you navigate thinking through that in a way that is not offensive and and isn't going to be just kind of inherently partisan
2: yeah. So two things. Number one, I'm glad that you think that it's obvious that Christianity has a rich heritage of pacifism. You are right. But unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of people who do not find that obvious. That's number one. Number two, um, the, you know, one thing that's really uh, ironically uh, a positive about being a pacifist is that it doesn't fit into the partisan politics. There, there is no pacifist party in America. Both parties will execute war on an as-needed basis, might approach the details in different ways. And, and by might, I mean definitely would approach the details in different ways. But um, at the end of the day, they're both going to say war is on the table as an available option uh to you know american society so i I think the hardest part for me personally about being a pacifist is uh just the reality that by declaring oneself as a pacifist you automatically are assumed to be like anti-soldiers Specifically soldiers, but certainly like cops and uh, whatever, are just inherently evil people. And I don't. I do think that, I think a couple of things. One is that 17 U.S. veterans commit suicide every day. So I would like to challenge everybody who thinks that they're supporting the military by just baptizing whatever war America or whatever nation wants to fight by saying, I, I think you actually don't care about veterans. I would rather not give people a reason to suffer for the rest of their lives being haunted by the things that they've done in war. Because the reality is that whenever you take a human life, it's going to haunt you for the rest of your life. And it should, because we're created in the image of God. So anytime you destroy something created in the image of God, that will haunt you. I want to support soldiers and veterans in ways that actually help them to reintegrate into society in healthy and productive ways and define ways to come to the reality of what that person has seen and done that uh, allow them to rediscover wholeness. Um, I, I know that there's kind of
1: an emerging uh, trend in scholarship to talk about moral injury is that, yes? yeah, people, you know, if you, if you take a life, you're not just inflicting harm on another person, but you are actually inflicting harm on oneself, on one's soul, and, and and moral character.
0: We we know that from Harry Potter. I mean, that is the whole Horcrux idea, and I don't say that in tongue and cheek. I think it's a beautiful image of murder. It is actually the whole Horcrux dynamic in Harry Potter that it fractures one's soul, and I think that is in art, you know, in this kind of pop cultural expression. Exactly the kind of stuff that uh, Michael was just talking about.
2: And one book that I, that I highly recommend on the topic of moral injury is called uh, Achilles in Vietnam. It uses the Iliad as a war text to describe moral injury. And then the, the author is a psychologist who's working with and interviewing Vietnam veterans and 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 the the way moral injury is being described in the Iliad, and the way that they are experiencing the, just their own psychological reality is is really incredible. And the way that the author kind of demonstrates all that is it it's a it's a masterpiece to say the least. Yeah. So th-
1: thinking about uh, politics uh, in American politics in twenty twenty. Uh, which has become uh, very uh, partisan, uh, if you haven't been paying attention. But I, I, one of the, the the main issues on the table, and I think I think it really is an important one, is is pro life. Uh, is and by pro life, uh, in the kind of the conservative meaning of it, is to be anti-abortion, and I, I think that is uh, it is important. But one thing that is I find troubling is that as someone else who is a pacifist or committed to Christian nonviolence, is how I, I would like to describe it, is that uh, war is, is a big selling point, big talking point on terms of conservatives, not just during the Bush era, but, I mean, talking about being, having a strong military is just a, a very important point for conservatives. And I, and I guess when I think about, you know, caring for the unborn, caring for children, I think, yes, I'm there, I'm for that. But I, as a pacifist, am also against drone strikes that kill children. And as we talked about, this isn't necessarily a partisan issue because, you know, during uh, the Obama administration, a lot of children were drone striked and killed. So th- this this affects both Republicans and Democrats. But at the moment, it, when it comes to conservatives and Republicans, having a strong military is an important talking point for the party. So yeah, I guess maybe you just say more about kind of. Your theology of war and how that might shape your own views on the current political conversations that are happening.
2: Yeah, so American politics is, in my view, uh, a (laughs) strangle. Oh yeah, I hope everybody's view. Unfortunately, there are some people who are very enthusiastic about the current state of. Well, anyways, there's a two party stranglehold on the American imagination of what is possible. Uh, in politics, you're basically born riding a elephant or a donkey and you're kind of socialized into kind of one of those two ways of, of thinking about the world and justice and society and law and government and all that. I think you're socialized into one of two, those two ways of, of kind of conceiving of the possibilities And I am unashamedly pro-life. It just makes sense in my bones. But because that commitment to being pro-life is is so fundamental, so rudimentary, I think that you can't be pro-life and then be fine with, you know, what's happening at the Southern border of the United States with family separation policies. You can't be fine, like as you said, with drone strikes that are taking out non combatants and not even just non combatants, but children. You can't be pro life and then not care about Black Lives Matter. Like the logic of being devoted to the preservation of life, that's a cataphatic ethical claim that life ought to be preserved pro-life womb the tomb I mean you can't be like anti universal health care the point is that universal health care is a a pro-life concern Mm -hmm. Um, and and a pro-life party that's committed to the preservation of life is gonna be a lot of things you know it's gonna be anti-capital punishment it's gonna Mm -hmm. be anti-war of course poverty Ah, climate change Uh, Absolutely. Climate change. Yeah. And I think that you know the reality is that there doesn't have to be a two-party stranglehold. There's more than enough room for yet another party that has its kind of political starting point with saying, we are pro-life. We're, we're in favor of the preservation of life. And we're, we want to bring that to bear all the way from the womb to the tomb. I know
0: Michael you have a background in you know metal and hardcore that you can tell our listeners a little bit about. I I myself have have such a background. You know to be to be honest, one of the things I blogged about back in the early days of the Two Cities uh as a blog is actually how Metal music in particular, and a lot of people are surprised to hear this, but metal music in particular has been one of the strongest pacifistic influences in my life. And a lot of people hear that and they just think, well, the music sounds so loud and crazy and presumably all the musicians are angry and and presumably they, you know, are fomenting violence through, you know, at least the mosh pit that's taking place right in front of them, right? So... There's this kind of idea that metal music is inherently violent or something like that. But I have to say that the, the lyrics, uh, and I'm thinking of particular songs, really stand out. You know, there's this kind of long line of sort of, especially because of the influence of punk, there's this long line of kind of like anti-authoritarian concerns. And, and some of that is what, what do people in power do with their power, and particularly as it pertains to violence? And I'm curious to know, has metal been an influence in your theologizing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, I can credit punk hardcore music as the influence on just my political worldview. I mean, growing up, listening to Rage Against the Machine and the song Killing in the Name Right, I like that's, that's the sexy title for my dissertation <laughs> is killing in the name, uh, because that's, that's the nature of war. War is authorized violence. Mm. So it's violence perpetrated under authority. It's not vigilant anti It's mm. not guerrilla warfare in, in the sense of being just kind of groups of people who are fighting or without, without the expressed consent and uh, and being sent out into war by governing authority that's kind of what war what makes war war is mm. that uh, authorized violence mm. and so hearing that song as you know i don't know when i first heard that song i was probably like 13 14 years old and just that idea that you're killing in the name mm-hmm. of another but yeah modern life is war is a is another band that it's probably still my favorite band to this day. Very thoughtful in their critique of violence. They've got an excellent song called Indianapolis Talking Blues. And in contrast to you know the typical style of hardcore, the guy doesn't scream at all. He just talks the whole time. Mm-hmm. But it's just this wonderful critique of why do people kill. But yeah, punk rock, hardcore, it's very much... Uh, what has uh, informed my entire (laughs) political worldview. And then Christology, you know, came crashing on top of that, where it was like, oh, here's the authority who has removed lethal force from the equation of what is permissible within uh, the political arena. And as my thesis argues, that society under the rule of that king who heralds uh, amongst the nations in which they sojourn that Jesus Christ is Lord and discipleship to Christ as Lord means following in his commandments, one of which is to lay down the sword. But punk Uh rock, it's, it's a, it's a, especially to the outsider, Um, It it looks like it's just chaos, but there's this deep humanitarianism Mm -hmm. within punk rock and hardcore and a very activist type of community that is uh, really trying to pull its resources in order to do good. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I, well this is great. I feel vindicated because I have always felt that metal was such a really great interlocutor for for these sorts of, of questions. And it really has been such a strong influence. You know, one of my favorite bands is is Metallica being a, you know, just a cl- classic metal fan and Back during the Bush era, I guess Metallica music was being used during some, uh, like, torture, you know, sequences uh, in the Middle East. And Metallica found out about it and they were like, absolutely do not use our music for intimidation, you know, these sorts of things. And you might you might hear that story and be kind of surprised because you might just think, like, oh, Metallica is, like, gnarly, like, heavy stuff. Like, surely they would love you know, to have their music be used in such a way. And that's, of course, just a gross misunderstanding of the music and the purpose behind it. You know, they have some famous anti-war songs like Disposable Heroes, for example, which, you know, the refrain is, you know, back to the front. You will do what I say when you must die, back to the front. It's just really tense. And it's it's hard to listen to that song and imagine that they would be pro using their music for for torture.
2: Yeah, actually in the during uh, the 2016 uh election, I went up to Cleveland, Ohio during the the RNC when Trump was officially named the Republican nominee and uh cuz Prophets of Rage who which is uh Rage Against the Machine was out Zach de la Rocha which you just got to settle sometimes. But uh, Prophets of Rage was playing a show just, just literally, you know, a, like a couple blocks away from the RNC. And they said the same thing. They said uh, back in uh, during Operation Iraqi Freedom, the U.S. military used the song Killing in the Name as uh, a form of torture. Wow. And they sued the U.S. government and lost. Wow! Uh, And so the the government continued to use that song. And so they said, now we're going to torture all those mother effers down the street because we're going to open up every single door and window in this venue. And we're all going to scream this song as loud as we can. It was a it was a moment. It was really it was it was beautiful. (laughs) You had like hundreds of people. Moshing their their hearts out and screaming in protest against right. the cruelty right. of uh, of well of war in principle, but also just of uh, torturing people.
1: That is very powerful. I don't listen to metal or hardcore <laughs> music. I think I, I think back in the day I, I did listen to Under Oath, which I don't I don't think quite qualifies uh, to the level of of, you, uh, of your listening. Habits.
0: Depends which album. Depends which album. Was it their only yeah, I mean, Chasing the Safety? The stuff
2: was like Death yeah. deathcore Exactly. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then they pivoted to Scream Out, which is uh, mm-hmm. the illegitimate form.
1: <laughs> there. Going back to the torture bit, I think they also used uh, Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up uh, in torturing as well, which has got to be the <laughs> worst Rick roll of all time. <laughs> You know, the song that, that
0: sticks out to me probably the most, and this is a new metal song, so this one would have been on the radio quite a bit, is actually BYOB by System of a Down. You know, when you hear BYOB, you think, you know, bring your own booze, right? That's what comes to mind. And in the chorus, the, the lyrics go, everybody at the party have a real good time. So at this point, you're like, oh yeah, BYOB, bring your own booze. But then the next line is, dancing in the desert, blowing up the sunshine, and you start to think that the party is a metaphor for something. And as you as the song goes on, you realize that what B Y O B means is bring your own bombs. And in and in the the bridge, it's this like really frantic sequence where the guitar player is like screaming and just saying all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, blast off! It's party time. And but then there's this kind of sequence that culminates with this idea of why don't princes fight their wars? Why do they always send the poor? And that honestly has been one of the most convicting and powerful lines of music that I, I've ever heard. And that, I, that song probably came out late high school, early college for me. And that has just gripped my imagination in terms of how I think about these p- power dynamics when it comes
2: to war. Yeah, the thing about war is that I think it, it gets across the idea that we, we discover like in the Pauline literature of just like the, the weakness of the law to be able to constrain sin. Mm -hmm. So war is of course bad. (laughs) Like no one, no one is saying like war is a, is a good is a positive part of, you know, human sociality or something. So everyone's saying, yeah, it's bad. And then they might say, but, and then carry on the conversation from there. But as an institution, you cannot outlaw war. Even if we did, people would just break the law. Nations would break the law. Kings and presidents would just break the law. They would find loopholes or reasons to say, oh, this law doesn't apply or just be honest and say, well, I'm just going to do whatever I want. But the law just cannot constrain war if we put war as like the worst thing imaginable in terms of what societies at a mass scale can do to one another. Yeah, I mean, even with just war
1: theory, which I think uh, in, in principle is a lot closer to a more pacifist stance than not, but even with, even with you know, just war theory kind of operating or, you know, the, you know, the Geneva Conventions and, and things that, are, that mo- the modern world has tried to restrain war. Uh, even with all of these kind of safeguardings and in scare quotes, you know, war just becomes, has become even more deadlier as it's progressed. And so, yeah, I think you're totally right. Passing a law isn't going to stop war. There needs to be a fundamental uh, change in how we view uh, our enemies and other countries and, and basically the, the value of life itself.
2: Right, exactly. And this was this is why I kind of chose this as a topic for how to approach political theology because of course there's you know numerous social ethical issues that you can position within the field of political theology but being an all or nothing person <laughs> i chose war because it 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 is the far extreme end of what societies do within the power available to them and to say no just full stop to war and to have theological justification for that. And a society, namely the church that is under the reign of, or, or that is giving their allegiance to King Jesus, what you've kind of have is what, what I've discovered along the way of doing this thesis was that I, what I realized is what I was working with was an apophatic ethic. So, in theology, you have two different approaches to uh, God talk. You have cataphatic theology and apophatic theology. Mostly different theologians have, approached, have used those different approaches to God talk. So cataphatics builds with what we know and then moves forward from there. So we might say, you know, we know that there's a God because look at all this stuff. you know. And then we know that God is good because God must be a perfect being and so on and so forth. And then you would kind of build a constructive theology based on a foundation of what you believe is true. Apathetics does the opposite. It starts with what we cannot affirm. So you see like James saying this, so God cannot lie. That's that's an affirmation by negation. So we know that, uh, God's not a liar. And then we can move backwards from there to like a, an affirmation that like God will never break the covenant that God made with Abraham, for instance. So if you take that, that approach, apophatics and cataphatics and apply them to ethics, in ethics, you might end up with, uh, with a cataphatic approach. You might end up with something like teleological ethics where you have a set goal in mind and you're saying uh, this goal is good, whatever that goal might be. And then we m- move forward constructively from there. Apophatics would do the opposite. It would say we know that this thing over here is bad or cruel or something like that, and that it cannot be done. And then you move backwards ethically from that, um, starting point. So if you try to say, okay, peace is the goal. So that's a cataphatic affirmation. Peace is the goal. And in order to, to reach that goal, I have to, you know, make, Uh, this move, and then this move, and then this move. So I have to say that, you know, compromises have to be made between uh, disputing uh, parties and that, you know, we have to have, let's say, like, nuclear weapons because other people have nuclear weapons. And we're not going to use those nuclear weapons, but they are a form of deterrent so that people know, don't mess with us because we want peace, but we also have nukes so that's like a way of moving forward towards the goal of peace apathetically to say war is no longer available as an as an instrument for executing justice and now you got to figure it out <laughs> it's a way of moving backwards to saying okay since deadly force cannot be wielded then therefore we have to figure out, you know, how to, how to live at peace with people that we have a long history of, of violence with. Or how to have a, a more just way of reacting or, yeah, reacting when there is uh, aggression that is um, directed towards us. That's kind of what I realized as I was uh, coming to the conclusion of my thesis is that it's, it's an orientation Difference, cataphatic versus an apathetic ethic. In our
1: last episode with uh, Maeve Sherlock, we talked about compromise, is that compromise is, a, is just a reality of politics. She talked about how, you know, if she didn't want to compromise, she'd have to form her own party, to which I said I would vote for her. But don't hold me to that. Because now what you're saying, Michael, I want to vote for you. You choose to run. But yeah, talking about the theme about compromise is that at the moment, we we do live in a two party system, like unfortunately, and and that in 2020 isn't going to change. It, hopefully, it'll change in the future. I totally agree with you. But at the moment, compromise uh, is on the table, and it's a matter about what do we compromise on. And so within your thesis, like what should be like where do, where's the compromise? At what part? Can we say as Christians, I'm not going to support you because of, you know, your views on war? I'm not going to support you on, you know, this issue or that issue. But, you know, wh- where's that line of compromise that you think at, as a Christian and as a church, what you, I think the, the language you talk about is a, a so, sojourning in the world, right? Where's that line of compromise that you think the church needs to stop at?
2: I, I'm going to say this to just give... Anybody who wants to just disregard what I have to say following this, a, f- a free pass. You get it. And that is that I'm, I'm not very good at compromise. <laughs> like I'm, I'm pretty bad at it. And, uh, you know, that's why I scream in a hardcore band instead of playing in like a, you know, a cover band. <laughs> you know, it's because I'm like, no. <laughs> so, I, I yeah, I, I'm, I'm not good. With compromise, and and if I'm being honest, I I don't you know I don't apologize for that, and I don't think that being pro compromise like is a virtue. (laughs) Um, So Oliver O'Donovan has a really interesting way about with uh, talking about the difference between teleological ethics and deontological ethics. He talks about how for A deontological ethical approach would say, if if you were uh, like the Donner Party, I grew up in Oregon. Part of my ethos growing up, like the Donner Party, was just synonymous with you know the Oregon Trail, which was synonymous with you know Oregon culture, and you would just say, "Look, kids are not food. Like just categorically, a child is not." Something to be consumed in any form. Doesn't matter if the child is already dead and everyone else is starving, as just a fundamental, you know, ethical reality, that corpse is not something to be consumed. Teleological ethics would have to say, well, let's think about this. Okay, other people are starving, other people could. Actually, live and it, and and that's good. If they ate this baby who died, and, and it's a, it's a way of of just kind of discerning the two ethical uh, approaches. It, it obviously doesn't shine very favorably on teleological ethics. <laughs> not not much, no. <laughs> but uh, but I think I think it's getting a like it, it's it's capturing something important about being a moderate if you're constantly looking for the middle way between two disputing claims or two disputing parties or something like that, and just finding a a compromise that will satisfy both, then I think at at times you will be negotiating with cannibals. And I just think that sometimes you just got to say no with absolutely no nuance. I guess so. Can to rephrase the
1: question? Then you know mm-hmm. the the unnuanced no. Where where is the unnuanced no when it comes mm-hmm. to war? Thinking yeah. about war as a party platform. Where where is that unnuanced no? Where do we draw the line?
2: Well, so and here's my contribution to political theology, as uh, because I'm specifically working within what's called the ecclesial turn in political theology so uh you know you can credit that back to like Karl Barth with the church the ecclesial dogmatics and just a focus on this community as having an ethic that when you look at it real real hard what you start realizing is that this is a this isn't just a a community with an ethic it's a it's a political community. It's a, it's a society. Well, I mean, you guys, it's called the Two Cities Podcast. You know this from the City of God. There's the City of Man and the City of God, and the two overlap. But as Augustine argues, uh, a good Christian has, has never been a good Roman, and a good Roman was never a true Christian. Uh, so there is some incompatibility in being a Christian and an American what pacifism is uh, something that gets a lot of uh, airplay in the ecclesial turn talks. You got big, big people like Stanley Harwas, of course, and, and other people who were kind of the evangelists who won over other people to uh, a pacifist viewpoint. But I think the mistake that they make is they silo this ethic into the church you know they would say every christian should be a pacifist but i think they have a hard time saying that every person and every nation and every government should also be a pacifist one and the way that i approach the kind of deontological commitment to being against cannibalism <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and against the, the, that extreme idea is by saying that the Noahic covenant is a universal one, which I think it establishes and, and confirms the universal kingship of God that was established at creation. So at creation, God is enthroned, I think that's the, that's the idea of God resting. In every ancient Near Eastern cosmogony uh, creation story, when the God rests, that's when the God reigns as the great king over the pantheon or over the various, you know, vassal kingdoms. I think, that, I think we see the same thing in creation. And then that's re reestablished and confirmed in the Noaic covenant. Um, and what's really interesting about the Noahic covenant is that what immediately follows the, the Noahic covenant is a genealogy of nations. So we're, we're used to the genealogies in the Bible that are, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and you know, individual uh, genealogies. That's the norm. This, this genealogy is unique because it's, it's, it's a national one. So it's where all the kingdoms came from. This is significant because in the context of the Noahic Covenant, it is saying that God is the great king over all these kingdoms. So, in other words, all the kingdoms are gods. God belong to God. And what we find in the Noahic Covenant is, I think, what people have historically and, and would, would easily point to as something that gives warrant to the exercise of War and just lethal force in general, whatever that, whatever form lethal force might take. Specifically, I, th- I think it's nine, Genesis 9, 6, where it's that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, or in the image of God, God created man, or something like that. What m- my argument, exegetically, what I'm doing is saying that in the Gospels, when Jesus, you know, on the night that he was betrayed, He turns to Peter after Peter picks up the sword and wields it in the name of Christ, striking not a soldier or even the high priest. He strikes a slave. The first casualty of the sword wielded in the name of Jesus was by Peter slicing off the ear of a slave, which I think is, uh, uh, is, is a good metaphor for how the sword has been wielded in the name of Christ throughout Christian history. But on that night, Peter wields a sword, slices off the ear. Jesus says, Put your sword away. All who live by the sword die by the sword. And basically, my argument reduces down to this Jesus is interpreting and giving explanatory meaning. To the Noahic covenant. That command, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This command from Jesus, all who live by the sword, die by the sword. These two things are related. Jesus is the great king of the Noahic covenant. So he's the the one who's the king of all the nations. And so he's not just giving this commandment to Peter and to whoever kind of voluntarily says, okay, I'm going to do what Jesus says. He's giving this commandment as the great king, and the church is the one who heralds this, uh, announces this commandment throughout the nations in which they sojourn. So that's, that's how the nations find out about it. But it has immediate authority because it comes from the one who sits on the highest throne to whom all other principalities and powers and kings and presidents and politicians and governments must uh, answer. And so the ascended Christ has taken up lethal force in victory. And so the compromise that we make now is what do we do now that that is off the table? So there's plenty of other things that are on the table. Because lethal force is no longer an option because the ascended crisis has taken it up in victory, then of course crime is still to be reckoned with and still to be punished, and it might even be an instance where uh life in prison is the result and I you know i maybe I don't like that, maybe I think that's that's still that's still cruel. I'm still going to say that. As someone who is committed to the preservation of life, that life in prison without parole, which is terrible and awful, is still preferable to the the death penalty. And I'm not the only one saying that. I mean, when people are on death row, they appeal it and, and ask for a softer punishment being life in prison without parole. So of course that's a terrible fate. But I think those are the compromises that we're left with is to say, okay, this is just off the table. There are other things that are on the table and I don't necessarily like them, but I will figure out a way to try to negotiate given the, the viable alternatives to lethal force that are there. Some of those I prefer over others, but I'll, you know, I'll settle for not deadly force.
1: So you kind of want to shift the conversation from compromise to a third way, a, a different, <laughs> a, 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 a different <laughs> you've been saying all that stuff uh, to, to summarize it that way, but you, you don't want to compromise that the, there is the unnuanced no, is that neither of these options are going to work. And there, there actually needs to be a different way of thinking about a shift in our perspective away from violence.
2: I think, um, so here's my critique of like middle way thinking. Uh, it's not that it's just inherently bad. It's that I think, you know, I remember when I was a kid and I first heard the phrase uh, moderation and everything. Like I was like 12 or something. and the first thought that came to mind was, uh, wait, if you're moderate in everything, then you're not moderate in your moderation. So there's at least one exception to moderation. And that's where I think I want to, to say there, there, there's a limit to the usefulness of moderate thinking or middle way thinking. Because if you're moderate in everything, that, that's that that's going to be excessive in something. So to say that that something is deadly force. Deadly force is something that I just won't compromise on. I will not support, you know, a policy, whatever in, in whatever the form it might take, be it abortion or uh, capital punishment. Or, yeah, fill in the blank. That is is employing deadly force. That's just not an option. However, there are a lot of other options, and I and I and I might you know I might have to compromise here and there uh, in order to uh, you know try to steer things in a direction that I think is better. But there's just one issue. There's one thing. The use of deadly force that I just cannot compromise on.
1: Michael, we we've talked uh, uh, a lot about lots of things: cannibalism, the Donner Party, etc. <laughs> um, but if, if you could, if you could, kind of you know sum up your thing. If you could say one thing to the church in America in this awful year of 2020, what
2: what, what would it? What would that be? Jesus Christ is Lord, and that is a political claim. And if we are willing to compromise on on Christ's lordship in politics, then we're doing politics wrong as Christians. You know, a lot of people I think want like a concrete action point. And in in you know, this October prior to, you know, the November 3rd apocalypse. <laughs> um And I get that, you know, in this political environment. And I think sometimes the right thing to do when you're voting for a president is to scribble in the write-in box as much of Psalm 2 that you can fit into that little square. The nation's rage and God laughs and I think sometimes we can laugh too. Good. I got my
1: ballot right here. My
2: mailing ballot. So just start,
1: start scribbling. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Michael. Appreciate yeah. the uh, flexibility of bouncing around from your <laughs> dissertation topic to metal to cannibalism and the Donner family. I mean, this is, we, we really <laughs> went places. <laughs> Well, seriously, thank you so much for for joining us and uh, being a part of this conversation.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.